Acorn's a relatively new, relatively small organization, but I know that what we do works because we're bringing people into the organization who a couple of years ago were voting, were standing for like right-wing parties, the people that did abandon Labour. And they're standing shoulder to shoulder with ethnic minorities because they've got shared interests. They get screwed by the landlords or the council or, or whoever it might be. And they're people who they'll say, you know, we got shafted. I'm Neil Maggs, and this is Bristol Unpacked, speaking to fascinating Bristolians on topics where others may fear to tread. Brought to you by the city's community-owned media, The Bristol Cable. When working-class people feel abandoned, they look for answers. This has happened in this country, and it's happened on the other side of the Atlantic. It culminated in storming of the capital. We talked to Nick Ballard, member of ACORN and founder of the union that tries to support and look after working-class communities, started out in Bristol and now is in many cities all across the country. He's not your usual left activist. He's controversial, he's confrontational and has been accused of vigilantism, but he gets results. Policies have changed, landlords have climbed down. How can the left organise? How can we get communities supporting each other more? And how can we combat the far right? So these people start to look, perhaps, in the right direction and the left behind are listened to once again. Is the notion of property ownership itself bad? No, I don't think it is, like, bad in and of itself. Um, I don't think that, like, basic human needs, like food shelter so that would be housing water these things should be should be privatized everybody needs them everybody should have access to them just by virtue of you know being human if you are a landlord if you do own property i may or may not like agree with that as a like you know political thing but you know that aside do you have to raise the rent every year do you have to always be like getting the the market rate or pushing the market rate And especially what does that look like when there's no rent controls? You know, I mean, like if you've paid off the mortgage, you know, maybe you've made a little bit. Like, do you know what I mean? I think there's this idea that, you know, like people say, oh, you know, it's like for their pension or something like that. And that's, you know, that's that's definitely true of of some. And then there's others who've got like massive property portfolios. So you would draw that that distinction then between somebody that just is a landlord with maybe a second home and for for somebody that it becomes a business. You'd, would you draw the distinction between the two in terms of what is is good or bad <laughs> for one of fair way putting it? Definitely, there's definitely a difference. Do you know what I mean? To be like a property investor, a property yeah. speculator, flipping houses, buying up whole swathes of communities, and not doing anything to them, you know, just sitting on it, you know, like 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 big developers do with land banking, yeah. and then just like waiting for the the prices to go up and then go up. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely like another kettle of fish altogether from the stereotypical like small landlord um that doesn't mean to say that you know like certainly not all landlords like mistreat their tenants particularly and some can be really great but then it's also not to say that someone who owns just one extra house or or two can't horribly mistreat their tenants as well so this is the key then isn't it it's not necessarily in the context of the work that Acon do it isn't just kind of landlords for landlords sake they are people that are either kind of Common slum landlords or t- landlords that have mistreated their renters. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, you know, our acorns like line on housing. If it was 
going to be summed up in like one line is decent, secure and affordable homes for all, you know, and that could look like a whole combination of different things. It could be rent controls, which keeps things in the private sector affordable. It could be like, you know, much, much more investment in council housing. It could be both, you know, it could be all sorts of different things. That's the outcome that we want. And I think there's lots of different ways that it could be achieved. Private renting's gone up. It's almost doubled since 2007. Mm-hmm. So obviously at the moment with COVID hitting, people that are in more precarious situations that do rent are, are potentially at risk. So in your work, are you seeing an impact increasingly so on people being evicted or people falling into arrears? Yeah, absolutely. Although there's been various delays on evictions during lockdown. They never covered lodgers, for example. So they've been getting evicted left, right and centre all year anyway. Illegal evictions are happening all the time as well. It's something that we're always having to support people and fight back against. You know, private tenants pay a lot more money in rent on lower incomes and with so many people losing their jobs or reduced work because of coronavirus is massive numbers of people are getting into debt and, you know, can't pay their rent. The UK government website says that there are 227 renters that are falling into arrears since the pandemic, and that's like 3%. But it is predicted that is going to continue to rise and rise. You know, obviously, the worst case scenario is eviction. The notice period, which is two months, has been extended. So it's now six months and has been for for a little while. But basically, what we're seeing is landlords are giving these notices now more frequently than they were before, because now they know... So, mm-hmm. you know, if I was a landlord wanting to evict one of my tenants, I would say, right, I'm going to give them all six months notice now. If I want to change my mind close to the time I can, that's what we're seeing. And we also know that most renters don't wait to be removed by a bailiff. They get the eviction notice from the landlord, which really is just a letter saying, I want my house back. There's no, they don't have to move at all. But most tenants don't know that or they're worried about it or they're worried about like not finding it anywhere. So they leave almost okay. as soon as they get the notice. And I know that you started out in Bristol 2014. Is that right? Yeah. 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 So now you're in uh, how many cities across the country? 24 cities. Wow. Problems are worse in, in some areas than others. Like rents are rising in most places. In the south of the country, it's definitely a lot worse on that front. But then you've got places like Manchester where, although it might be relatively cheap, the rents are rising much, much faster. So they're going to catch up. Issues like evictions and disrepair and stuff like that is the standard all over the country, basically. The, the work that you do, what's the strategy, the methodology? If somebody contacts you and says, look, I've got a problem here. My landlord's not kind of helping me. I'm, I'm having a kind of eviction notice or I'm in arrears. He's, he's not understanding my current situation. Yeah. What's the, the strategy that you guys use? Well, we're a direct action organisation, which means we don't have access to highly paid lawyers. We work like a union and we use collective action basically saying there's more of us than there are of them representing people facing homelessness getting kicked out of their homes you know living with water pouring in through the ceilings and holes in the walls and stuff like that you know you know like name and shame the landlord put pressure on them to take back the eviction notice basically we'll just use whatever protest tactics that we can in order to get a win for our member be it a rent reduction keeping them in their house it's about communities coming together and supporting each other, standing up for your neighbours and saying, look, you know, 
we're not having this person being evicted because they're part of our community. Uh, we're going to stand up and fight to keep them in their home. And on that, do you think because communities are a lot more transient, they probably were traditionally, mm. particularly in working class communities, and um, that whole sense of rallying around your kind of neighbour was probably quite a natural, normal, everyday thing that people would probably have done in the 50s or the 60s. The thing about community is that it's built on shared experiences. So, like, yeah, maybe people do move, you know, with private renters, you can move like a couple of times a year. But what we're finding is that, you know, you can move from, you know, one street to another and, you know, we can say, well, actually, you know, there's like two, three acre members on this street or you might even move to a different city. And anyone can join, you just pay like a fee? How does it work? Yeah, you pay your, pay your dues. So, like, basically ours are, are pretty low. We say the equivalent of an hour's wage a month, yeah. less if you're unemployed or if you're part-time or if mm. you're retired. That's what keeps us going. That's what's enabled us to go from, you know, like a bunch of mates in Bristol six years ago to being fully national now. On, on the whole kind of renters, landlords thing, to, to sort of play devil's advocate a little bit, yeah. if you're a landlord and there may be landlords listening and you, you have renters that are in arrears, particularly, mm. say, now with the kind of COVID situation, when if you think about somebody that maybe owns, a, you know, a couple of properties, not like a huge, massive you know, kind of yeah. landlord with with a hundred or so, they're in a kind of snowball effect where they could be in arrears with their kind of mortgage as well. Yeah. So, do you have any sort of sympathy for their situation? Yeah, I've got sympathy for anyone struggling. To be honest, I guess where we come from as a organisation is certainly on housing issues. We don't represent landlords; we represent tenants. For there are landlord organisations out there that will support them i would say the government does a lot to, to support landlords as well i mean you know, i don't want anybody to be like struggling financially the main difference is that not saying that i want it to happen but like if a landlord's struggling to pay a mortgage on a property that they're renting out they're not going to lose their home whereas they might lose like an investment and they might definitely lose an important source of income but at the end of the day they have got that second property even if, say, like they're completely in arrears and missing payments and they have to hand the keys back into the property, oh, you mean because they have the house they still live in? Yeah, that's it. I mean, yeah. like, I'm not saying it would be like a good situation for them. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. sure. Yeah. Yeah. But, like, you know, they're not going to be basically if a tenant can't pay their rent, they're out on the streets. Do, do you think, over all the coronavirus measures that were put into place, and I know that people that have mortgages were. Um, sort of encouraged to kick the can down the road and have like a three-month grace period with their mortgage company. Mm. But renters didn't have that, did they? Would you say that amongst all the decisions that have been made, that renters are lower down the pecking order in the same regard that freelancers feel like, you know, I'm a freelancer myself, but self-employed, you feel like you were not at the forefront of some of some of the decisions being made. Did they feel as if you were sort of second-class citizens to people that own property? Yeah, 100%. I mean, I've got to be honest, that's not necessarily like a, a new feeling. But yeah, I mean, ourselves, loads of other organisations were calling for much stronger measures to protect tenants, including yeah. a rent waiver, which isn't like, you know, free rent. It was the same, that's exactly the same as a mortgage, because people said, oh, they're letting you off your mortgage. It wasn't. You were just kicking the can down the road for three months. But that same grace period, for want of a better word, wasn't afforded to renters, was it? No, no, it wasn't. I mean, I'll be honest, we were saying if you get into rental arrears specifically because of COVID, then that should be waived rather than just a holiday. But yeah. what we were saying, if that does put some landlords into 
difficulties, that the government should support them. They should make benefits available to them if that's what they need. But, yeah. you know, there's millions and millions more tenants than there are landlords. So we're saying, well, look, we know that huge numbers of renters are going to be put into debt. So the government should act to say, okay, well, we'll protect you from that. And then if a relatively small number of landlords struggle as a result, then the government can support those landlords when they get into problems. And like, you know, I think benefits should be available to anybody who needs them if they can show that they need it. Sure. According to a poll for the National Residential Landlords Association, 87% of people have paid rent as normal. And this was interesting to me. 8% of people have agreed a reduction between the landlord and the renter, or almost amicably between them. Is that something you would encourage for landlords to kind of be understanding and empathetic to the current situation? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, like, you know, just as human beings, if people are struggling, then it is a natural inclination to want to help. Sometimes like money gets in the way of that. But looking out for each other should be everyone's number one priority. Particularly now when we're all in this, you know, this shit, really, you know, to to various lesser degrees, obviously. Yeah, absolutely. And also, I mean, like, even if as a landlord are only concerned with your bottom line is if you evict your tenant because they can't pay, there's going to be a period when the house is going to be empty. You're not going to be getting anything. And because of the situation that we're in, it's not that unlikely that whoever you're getting next is going to be in the same situation. It's much better to work something out. Now, that's something that we've negotiated for huge numbers of tenants. We've got template letters and you know, we can support people through that. Like a lot of the current situation with COVID, it sort of exposed existing inequalities. If we just think a little bit about Bristol, and I know your, your work has taken you further afield, mm-hmm. rents in Bristol have increased by 42% mm-hmm. in the last five years, yeah. uh, which is three and a half times quicker than wages. Right. Um, it's it's clearly not sustainable in the city. You know, no. you've got something like the third highest amount of people moving out of London now coming to Bristol. You know, student populations increased by about 50% in the last five, six years as well. So more and more people are coming. If you had the seat in City Hall, what kind of measures could you put in place to try and solve this issue? I think a lot of it is down to central government, to be honest. But if I was mayor of any major city, I would be doing exactly what Acorn is doing, which is lobbying for the power to set rents locally. You know, we used to have it. Thatcher took it away. But you can see it in countries all over all over the world. I was world. going to ask, are there examples of that at the moment where that is successful? Yeah, Barcelona's doing it. Berlin's doing it. A lot of the Scandinavian countries have pretty much always had it. Yeah, And we used to, and the other reason we don't have it anymore is because the governments of the day wanted to sell off council housing yeah. and put it into investment opportunities. And, you know, you can't do that so much if there's controls on rent. If, if you turn back the clock, maybe to the mid-80s, early-90s, where if you grew up in a working-class community, in some regard, for you to kind of uh, – escape the wrong word – but for you to have some kind of social capital or some kind of independence and agency, lots of people did invest in property then. Yeah. you know, And that was their way to – didn't get credit – you know, in certain minority communities, people would all chip, and I can remember it vividly now, people would all chip in together. Six people would buy a house together and then it would snowball from there. Now, probably some landlords that own lots and lots of properties hmm. that did kind of start out with nothing from humble kind of beginnings and backgrounds. Yeah. How, how uh, is that a bad thing when if they'd not done that, they may still be in a kind of lowly position? 
I think it's a I think it's a complicated one. I mean, I wouldn't you know want to deny anybody you know like the opportunity to like make a make a success of their life, um, and you know that might well have been like the only options available uh, you know to people at certain times. Some of the criticisms that have been levied at Acorn uh, are partly perhaps the 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 effectiveness in which you've operated. So you know there you know how you will sometimes do is you will turn up in a big group outside the house of a landlord or could be the business and you'll kind of make a noise and you'll kind of have banners and, and that will attract the attention of, of the media and, and has done in the city. Can, could that sometimes be seen as that sort of public humiliation? Is that fair? I mean, it probably is quite like humiliating to a slum landlord to be called out on it. And, you know, if I was treating people like that, I'd be pretty mortified if, you know, all my neighbours found out about it. And that's why we do it, because it's very effective. You know, like we don't really come across very many good landlords, not because they're not necessarily there, but because by virtue yeah. of the work that we do, you know, people come to us when there's a problem. Have you ever been wrong? Have you ever been wrong? Like, like taking the, take the word of someone who... You know, because you know, in reality, there you know there are always people that game the system in, in any walk of life. Have there ever been occasions where you have had somebody that has come forward and having looked at it or investigated it, actually they were just not paying their rent and taking the piss? Oh right, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we we, could, we do have people like sometimes, you know, if we're going to take on somebody's case, then you know, like we look at all the all the details we can look at like contract agreements find out you know see what correspondence has has gone on um and you know we'll work so out so you would do all that due, due diligence type stuff before you would go and protest outside a, yeah. a, a landlord's property or business yeah of course we would look like right idiots if we like made a big song and dance about something and then yeah. it came out that that wasn't the that wasn't the case would you normally try and contact the landlord to get their side of the story before you would um, do that Basically, we support the tenants to contact the land. It depends on the situation because you know how, mm. how far it's already it's already gone. But we'll support the tenant to like contact the landlord, saying, "Look, this is the situation. Obviously, as they see it, this is what we want to happen. So, you know, like I can't afford the rent because you keep putting it up, for example, or your, you know, this eviction notice is illegal, or even if it is legal, you know, I want to stay and." the landlord has the opportunity to set the record straight. What we're not here to do, though, is, um, you know, we're not going to pretend to be impartial. Do you know what I mean? When it comes down to that, we're, we're on the side of the tenant. We're not going to take on something that we think is incorrect. You know, like if the landlord says, oh, no, the tenant's done this or that, you know, we'll satisfy ourselves that, like, we're, yeah. we're in the right. But, yeah. you know, landlords, you know, again, will say all sorts to us. They won't stop up until they've finally given us what we want. You know, a lot of the time they'll be, they'll still be sort of saying all sorts of different things and misrepresenting stuff or, or lying. But basically, we'll do enough due diligence to ensure that we're happy that we're not going to, you know, make tits for ourselves, basically, and that we're not going to be like going after somebody who, who doesn't deserve it. Um, yeah. But, you know, at the end of the day, we're not lawyers. Just pause that chat for a minute, do that advert thing again, and encourage you to join the Bristol Cable. This conversation with Nick, you know, has some parallels to what the cable are and what they do. We're not waiting or complaining, but we're building it ourselves, and you can become part of that by joining us and have a say in what we 
talk about across the city of Bristol. Back to the chat. You know, there are a lot of property owners from minority communities in Eastern and St. Paul's, yeah. uh, particularly from the, from South Asian communities. And, and also, you know, some black landlords as well. You've had some uh, kind of back and forth and tension points with them. And, and the kind of the perspective of how how that's kind of seen and the pushback from individuals mm. uh, to, to Acorn. Have you had kind of sort of pseudo allegations of, 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 of racism or allegations of targeting Asian landlords, you know, in Eastern? Is that, has that come on your door? Yeah, it has. It has. I mean, like landlords, you know, in, you know, whatever form they come have always got a reason where they think that they're being treated unfairly by, by Acorn. Um, that's definitely one that, you know, that, that has come up. Um, all I can say is that, you know, it's absolute nonsense. And most of the time, in fact, I'd say like, you know, all, almost all the time when we're actually have been engaging with landlords from like an ethnic minority, their tenants have also been from an ethnic minority. Unfortunately, exploitation, pursuit of like profit and money over anything else doesn't know many boundaries at all. And also, you know, like in particular, like inner city areas, like you're saying, you know, those are areas where they have the general population has a greater percentage of ethnic minorities. And therefore, you would also expect that, you know, the landlord population would also reflect that. Is that sort of pushback or accusations of, of ACORN targeting Asian landlords being kind of racist? That, you, that That's something that's been hidden behind to, to stop scrutiny? Is that what you yeah. mean? Yeah, I think so. And it's worth saying that it's, you know, it's come up like, you know, a couple of times ever yeah. in my experience and we've been around for six years it's the exact sort of the same treatment that we give to you know anybody else it's not like we started and like these were the first groups that we came up against because that's yeah. absolutely not the case it's by no means the majority of cases either if you don't like what's happening to you at the hands of an organization like acorn you know yeah. like you will think it's unfair you know you come up with a reason that you think, oh, I don't deserve this because nobody, you know, wants to think of themselves as like the bad guy. Do you know what I mean? You, so you are also targeting landlords in other areas as well, yeah? Yeah, of course. I mean, this is the thing. It's like, you know, our our members live in, in you know, particular areas. Private renters will be concentrated in the inner city. If they're in council housing, a lot of them will be a little bit further out. And if it's council housing, then, you know, the target's the council. We're not knocking on doors trying to say, oh, you know, is your landlord like this or that? We knock on doors, oh, yeah, this is like what we do, this is our job. Talking yeah. to people about the issues that they as community members are facing, yeah. they tell us, you know, like, oh, you know, the housing situation is terrible, it's too expensive or completely unrelated yeah. to housing. Yeah. The class dynamic, I know you, conversations I've had with you that you're a working class boy from Bristol. Uh, and it might just, I think, a perception Mm. Pro- dare I say a little bit, a little bit of the cable as well? I think is is oh. probably true. A perception of what a cable reader is uh, is also kind of similar. Is is the perception of a Acorn protester, you know, or, or, or a member that with that that it is a younger, slightly more kind of momentumy kind of middle class? Would that be fair? Um, I don't know if I'm the the right one to to ask. I mean, I don't. I think some people probably would would view it in that way. It's not the case, and I think that it might be like convenient to some people to choose to view it in that way. Playing the man, not the ball, yeah? 
Yeah, exactly. If you spoke to some of those landlords that I may know, you may know, like to all my experiences of growing up and living in the inner city, they would probably identify as working class, even though they might own four or five houses or whatever now. What is your interpretation of what working class is? I'm, I'm not an economist. I'm not a like political theorist. But essentially, like if you work for a wage, you're definitely working class, I would say. And, you know, if you don't really have control over, you know, like your working conditions, then, yeah, that's very likely as well. I mean, obviously, like there's a big growth in, like you mentioned earlier, like freelancers. But, you know, like if you own property that you that you make money from or yeah. if you run businesses that your income comes from the work of others, ultimately, you know, I don't really think you can lay claim to being working class. But if you're the people doing so the So it's work, not static, then it changes. So if you are born, I don't know, say you're born in a single parent family in a council house and then you gravitate to owning your own business with 10 employees or you own a couple of houses, by definition, you then cease to be working class, you become middle class. So it's it's it, it, it's transient, yeah? It is definitely transient. It definitely changes. I mean, like, you know, I, you can't have a multi-millionaire working class person in, in my yeah. view. So does that therefore mean someone like, I don't know, I don't know, Pete Doherty, yeah, mm. public school boy, educated, parents of wealth, slumming it in a, you know, it's a bad example because he's a rock star, but somebody, somebody of that kind of, you know, there's plenty of people living in vans, for example, yeah. uh, in in Bristol that yeah. come from quite affluent backgrounds. Mm. Are they working class now because they're maybe working in the gig economy or they're kind of, you know, making ends meet, but they don't own property? Do they then become working class because they're kind of coming? down the pipe as opposed to up if that makes sense i mean social mobility definitely works up and down yeah no doubt about it do you know what i mean i mean you could yeah. you could have a fortune and lose it i guess if you've got if you've got a way out and you've got a plan b and then that might be where you could like level like accusations of slumming it and things like this but to me i mean like you know you talk about the working class by definition you're talking about it's a class of people. That's a huge numbers of people, and people do definitely apply it to to individuals. And like you come from this background or that background, it can be it can be useful for like you know for some things. But for like talking about what's going on in society, who's got power in society, what do we need to do if we want to change it? By definition, we're talking about groups of people yeah that's that collective i'm just thinking more of a kind of simple definition of because i think this does tie into the property thing you know i know lots of people that i would consider working class i grew up with that maybe stayed at home a little bit longer and they would say i'm not going to pay someone else's mortgage for them yeah you know i refuse to do that i'm going to buy my own house i'm only going to save up i'm going to move and buy my own house because unlike some people that have come down the pipeline you know some people that you know they, that there's that constant anxiety that there is no, you've got nothing coming. Yeah. Whereas I think there are a lot of people now that probably uh, do work in the gig economy, do rent. There's a lot of them in Bristol. Sort of, possibly so they live, their day-to-day lives are probably more working class in the sense of where they live, who they are, what they do. But that they don't have that anxiety, you know, because they've got some inherited wealth or property coming their way. If you are of that younger demographic who have been massively affected by all this rental stuff, hugely so, you know, that you just, it's just impossible to get out the property line, even if you wanted to. Yeah. But they will benefit from that by by inheritance, won't they? Well, I mean, if they have got that inheritance. and I think, you say, know, they, I mean, say, they, say they have. If they have, are, are they not then working class? 
Well, I, it really, I think, to be honest, it really just depends on, on how much. If you know that, oh, yeah, I'm going to have a house bought for me in a few years, then, yeah, it's a temporary thing. You know that you've got the, the escape route or escape valve. And, you know, you're not in the situation of somebody who has got no realistic prospect of that that ever changing. Yeah. I think the way that the, the economy is going, more and more people don't have that as an option. And I think there's definitely a thing in Bristol where you know, probably quite a few people do have that. But overall... Mm-hmm. It's a race to the bottom at the moment. Yeah. It's an easy myth to point as the whole generation. The millennials and their avocados and riddled with decades worth of debt, like you say, no chance of, of, yeah. of ever getting on the property ladder yourself. Is like, yeah, things are going from bad to worse. And is that another example of playing when that gets pushed back and mocked? You know, like you said, the avocado sourdough kind of thing, which is sort yeah. of chucked out. We're looking at the kind of shallow consequences of what is a financial economic crisis, and actually, conversation can keep at avocado sourdough. I think you made a, you did a, you, you put a post out, I think, or from Acorn, it might have been you or somebody else about statues as well. If you can keep the conversation at those sort of symbolic kind of things rather than actual policies and change, it's almost like a little bit of a sleight of hand that people benefit from the conversation staying that shallow. Well, absolutely. It's a classic redirect, isn't it? It's just like, don't look at this massive problem that's screwing the country over here. Look at this group here. At various points, it's been different ethnic minorities or it's been people with particular political views, you know, and a lot of the time at the moment, it's like it's younger people. And let's let's forget the culture wars and, like, concentrate on the class war. That's what I would say. Yeah, let's touch on that because I think that's quite key. People tend to group themselves collectively I think probably along cultural lines rather than class lines now, you know, and there's a number of reasons as to why that is, which, you know, which is quite complex. But my feeling is we've lost a bit of class consciousness. And actually where it is re-emerging, ironically, is from the young people, I think, and probably a lot of young people that are kind of involved, you know, with Acorn and with the cable, that those kind of issues are back on the table now because obviously it's affecting them directly. Yeah, 100%. I mean, like, there's all sorts of, like, you know, like diversity and differences, the things that unite all these different communities is shared interest. Everybody has got like, a shared interest in having a decent, secure place to live. Everyone wants dignified and well-paid, meaningful work. Everybody needs the safety net of like a functioning welfare state, you know, decent education, public utilities. And, and that is the thing I think that we can unite people around, that we can rebuild community, rebuild this idea of, solidarity clearly all across the world now both sides of the atlantic working class people are rejecting the status quo rejecting the establishment but obviously at the moment they're gambling on the sort of slightly neo-fascist kind of <laughs> for want of a better thing they're jumping yeah. on that horse do you see that as a positive thing because they are questioning and beginning to see to to, to look against the kind of the existing order and maybe they're just looking in the wrong direction at the moment and then they'll slow once they realize that's slightly fraudulent will then re-collaborate their gaze more towards left politics is that me being optimistic <laughs> I, well I, I i'm an optimist i'm not sure like it's necessarily a positive but it's definitely an opportunity to turn it into one you know like ordinary people all over the world know that they're getting screwed yeah, and yeah. yeah they've been screwed by like this neoliberal establishment which has been in power in countries all over the world, certainly yeah. the West, for three, four decades now. Yeah. And people have seen their lives get worse. They haven't got better. 
And so people are saying, hey, what's going on here? We've been promised this. Those, uh, yeah, and those left behind communities in the sort of global capitalist world have been manoeuvred to vote for populist leaders. And as you said, it's global. It's in India, it's in Hungary, it's in Brazil. You know, this this rise in this kind of new, not all non-traditional politicians talking the language of representing the left behind. Basically, the left for too long, I think, has sort of taken certain communities for granted. I've got no particular like loyalty to the Labour Party, but, you know, it's something that the Labour Party has certainly done. You know, these working class communities are ours forever took them for yeah. granted and then turn around and look, guess what? They've gone in the other direction. Like we haven't been out organising our communities, engaging with them and saying like, look, what do we want? I mean, I've worked in community development work in deprivation communities down the country. For me, I felt this was a bit in the post for some time. Around the conversations 10, 12 years ago about people being disillusioned, seeing a kind of cultural, intellectual snobbery and emotional distance from those working class communities that have a strong sense of place, a strong sense of community, or a mm. strong sense of identity. And that does include patriotism, yeah, yeah. Um, which gets conflated as nationalism and nativism and racism. And I think that people who felt displaced, you know, there is some racism there. That's what, you know, that, that is there and that needs to be challenged. But actually what I think my, my, my sort of sense of all this is that the left stopped listening to those people because became slightly embarrassed by them, took it for granted, didn't need them to win. Then Labour loses Scotland. Then it starts to lose some votes in the South. Then it starts to lose the North, as we see now. They now need to find a way how to bring those people back. But yeah. I don't think they even know how to. They definitely don't know how to. And some would argue whether they want to either as well. I mean... Yeah. Acorn's a relatively new, relatively small organisation, but I know that what we do works because we're bringing people into the organisation who a couple of years ago were voting, were standing for like right-wing parties, the people that did abandon Labour, and they're standing shoulder to shoulder with ethnic minorities because they've got shared interests. They get screwed by the landlords or the council or, or whoever it might be, and they're people who they'll say, you know, we're from working class communities, we're still in them, we grew up in them, we worked here, we were members of the trade union, you know, we got shafted. And someone might say, oh, you know, there's no council housing left because this group or that group of people have got it all or they get easy access. Yeah. You can't dismiss them out of hand because you know, they're identifying a real problem, which is there's not yeah. enough affordable housing. And you say, well, is it that? Or what do you think about the government selling off all the council housing? And then these people are then the same boat as their neighbour, a few doors. You say, you know, there are people who are like like prejudiced and there's people who are like bigoted. And sometimes you'll never get away from that. And then sure. there's other people who've got very legitimate complaints. They're scapegoating the wrong people. It's misdirected. These people are our people or they should be. They should be our people, right? Because mm-hmm. people are getting left behind and getting screwed. And like, historically, they're the people, the left, should be and would have been organising for a better quality of life. We think that people ultimately know what they need, the basics of a decent life. Everyone wants it. And we're just going out there saying, look, we'll listen to what you've got to say and let's sit down with your neighbours, with the other communities, with the people. Let's work out what we need and let's go out and get it. And Almost a step away even from the sort of party political model, just taking power into your own hands and, and creating change in a real fundamental grassroots grounded way in a collective sense there's a massive opportunity for organizations like acorn to do that now because i think people are disillusioned with um the top down 
political system, I think. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We're I mean, not linked to any political party, and like you know, they've they've got their place. But this is about doing it ourselves, and like we're not going to wait around for someone just to give it to us one day. Yeah. We're going to go out there and take it, whether that's like you know demanding it through direct action and protests or building it ourselves through you know like the mutual aid networks that you know that we've built up and like well, cooperative funeral care the co-op movement generally like the supermarkets all of these things came out obviously the trade unions you know like back in the day we built all of this stuff for our communities and we can do it again yeah people like buying houses and stuff kind of like entrepreneurship pull yourself up by your bootstraps type thing that's obviously not an attitude that's often like associated with the left but i think like actually it really really is and should be because like yeah, like the working class comes from like nothing is very little a lot of the time and ultimately we're the ones who build everything who keep everything running and there's nothing that we can't do i don't think if we're organized and we know what our interests are we're out organized working together to say this what's the end game what's the end game nick you know you're a a national community organization that's that is like a kind of trade union really Mm. rent for acorn and for you sort of personally would you uh i can't think of any way of putting it would you like to see the that would you like to the direct overthrowing of the capitalist system i think the capitalist system has brought us to the edge of complete complete disaster we've got like an ecological crisis that is going to make you know like large parts of the world completely unlivable like you know push millions and millions of people into poverty yeah, it needs yeah. replacing. How that happens, you know, we'll see yeah. over the course of time. And it's not going to happen at all, I would say, unless unless we're organised. But, yeah, I mean, like, it's a bankruptcy. But, you, but it can happen? You believe yeah. it can? I do, absolutely, yeah. yeah. I don't think there's anything that we can't do as the people of the world if we put our minds to it, if we unite and say, this is what we want. Does after look like if that is overthrown? I call myself a socialist. Like Acorn doesn't like define itself in it, terms of any particular like political. Yeah, you personally then say so, yeah. Me personally, yeah. Like I'm a socialist. I think industry, public utilities, everything should be publicly owned and operated for the common good and not for private profit. How we get there, I think you know, like I say, like that's through through organisation, like through trade unions saying we're not going to operate. You know, like the. The yeah the, the, the powers of production yeah seize yeah. the powers of production yeah okay we yeah. already we already operate them you know it doesn't mean yeah that yeah. this is going to be some violent like overthrow revolution type thing I don't know what it's going to look like I, all I know is that we can't go on as we are are we too focused then on this so you think about you know people are familiar now with the kind of one percenter thing and you know if you look at I, I don't know the stats at the top of my head the mm. outrageous amount of wealth that people owned of a tiny 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 percentage globally yeah. it's clearly not trickling down as much as, as <laughs> what people kind of envisage like you say a few people are hoarding like obscene amounts of money it's a zero-sum game isn't it? there's not like unlimited resources there's not unlimited money and wealth and stuff in the world some people have got like far far more of it than they should and it needs to be shared out yeah. in terms of what it looks like you know, some people would say the obvious. I mean, I, I'm kind of, I've, I'm quite connected to the South American community in, in Bristol. And we know Venezuelans, we know Cubans yeah. that have lived under different political systems that have kind of started off with great intentions 
of autonomy and and uh, and collective ownership that have sort of turned quite sort of despotic and i know it's the obvious criticism of people venezuela and stuff like that but i think if you look at some places that have rejected the capitalist system why mm-hmm. why have they failed economically um well, like i said i'm not like a massive political theorist and i don't think that you can necessarily like just transplant you know one thing from one yeah. country to another is how oh, we'd do it like this or or even that we'd do it we'd do it better but it's often yeah. used isn't it it's often used as oh it didn't work in the russian revolution didn't work didn't work yeah. a lot of cynicism i think a lot of younger people that haven't been around or lived through sort of let any kind of left movements or, or aren't familiar with kind of history is that there ha- you know there have been attempts at this kind of stuff this is not the first time of an overthrowing no. a, a, a system there's always that man to pig, pig to man thing of uh, the argument being that human greed and human corruption, this you know distort that. Yeah, what makes you more optimistic? Well, I just I do think that like you know like stuff will go wrong. I mean that's that's yeah. life. I mean nothing works out perfectly. You know we're not looking for some like utopian like utopian system. If we're talking about systems that promised the earth and basically have brought us to the edge of destroying it, then you can look at the, the capitalist one that we've got at the moment. The other thing is, it's like, you know, there's not going to, you know, you, you don't have like one event when on the Monday you lived in like a terrible situation and then on the Tuesday you had like the, the revolution or the big reform yeah. or whatever it might be and everything's sorted out. You know, these things like take decades, hundreds of years sometimes to to change. The starting point has got to be, rather than it's everyone for themselves and you can trample over whoever you want to get to the top, the starting point has got to be, we've all got this in common, we're going to do our best to look out for each other. And you go from there and there'll be, you know, two steps forward, one step back and you just keep going, you keep going, you keep going. But we will get there. There's an idea which I quite like, that actually it's not about revolution, it's about evolution. And and once, like you say, people start, you said earlier about people who change their values about how they felt about their neighbour, that kind of stuff, as you say, doesn't come from the media, doesn't come from even social media, that comes from direct interaction with people and building relationships. And I think that that, that sense of gradual, I guess, self-awakening of individual people individually and collectively that change in system will happen organically and naturally in time because people I think already people are you know that you look at the green movement in recent times you know it's gained ground you know it's made the analysis of capitalist involvement in it isn't as great as it could be but the the, you know people are talking about that stuff exactly because this is the thing is this whole myth of human nature being greedy and selfish and all of that I don't think it is no no. It's nonsense. It's like people yeah. want to look out for each other. Well, we're pack animals, aren't we? We're we're um, primates in essence. We're pack animals. We're social animals. I've got a kind of theory that there's sort of sociopaths and psychopaths that kind of <laughs> a little drop of ink in a glass of water can kind of manoeuvre things in that direction. And I think you know, there, as you say, there's this sense of Darwinian attitude towards society and it's led us to a point that it isn't sustainable now. There has to be other models of change. Yeah, yeah, and there and, and and there are, you know. I think that you're right that you say that you know, like people will they were if they're confronted with the reality of of things. And let's face it, like most people in this country are confronted with a lot of reality, like every day. People, you know, will start to at least not necessarily see like the answers, but you know, to know that something is really, really wrong with the. I think that's already happening. I go back to my take on the um, populism thing. I, that's yeah. exactly what that is. And I think it's a process. And I think that once 
I'm an optimist as well. I think once people realise that actually, uh, you know, Trump, Farage, don't actually have their vested interests at heart. Once they realise it's a ruse or once they realise they're jumping on the wrong horse, then maybe that will come in time. I don't think you can go back now. You can't go back from that point. Well, like I know a lot of people of my age and older that did really kind of quite well under New Labour want to go back to this sort of centrist sort of stance. And it's like, well, no, because that's what that complacency and that lack of traction and connection and understanding led us to this point. Yeah, it ain't coming back. You know, and also, obviously, that sowed the seeds for the situation that we're in now. It wasn't yeah. a great time for everybody, yeah. but it was, it was a good time for some people. But we can't take it for granted that. Like, we've got to go out there and do the work because there's not much time, actually. And that yeah. sounds like too, like too doom-mongery because I am, I am optimistic. But, yeah. like, we might be able to wait for sort of, like, things to evolve naturally if there wasn't, like, climate disaster. We need to be out there. This is why I'm, I'm pushing Acorn so hard is this is, I think, like, you know, at the moment, like, it's not this year or next year, but over the next few years, this decade is one of the major chances that we've got to, really turn things around and we've got to go out there and and talk to people because they're not going to just come to us and that's another thing that the left has done wrong i think in thinking like oh you know if we just have the right arguments or we've got the right position on this issue or that issue leaving aside whether it was right in the first place then people will come to us as i know people won't come to you you've got to go to them we've got to go to where people are at whether that's like geographically like go and knock on their doors and talk to them outside of an election cycle. And also, you know, like, talk to them on the level and not look down on people. We don't go and tell them, oh, this is what you should think about this or this is what you should do about that. It's like, what do you think about this? What do you think the answers are? What do you think would happen if we did this? And that's how you bring people into an organisation and get them working with people that they never thought they'd work with before and doing things that they never thought that they'd do before. Because we're putting people who've been screwed all their lives, you know, they get the opportunity to not only to have their say, but to like fight back and make a difference. Being empowered. Yeah. Empowerment, isn't it? And I think they, as you say, some of lots of those institutions that empowered people in working class communities have long gone. So there is a vacuum there, isn't it? And clearly what you're doing is filling that. And I just, yeah, just want to say, well, you know, thanks for chatting. Uh, we've covered a lot of ground, Nick. Gone in, se- gone in several directions. Get me back on another times. <laughs> yeah, let's do a seven-hour one next time. That'd be good, <laughs> I reckon. And uh, all the best with it, mate. And um, truck on because it's, it's clear that you're making, um, you know, making some big difference. And from one city to how many? Thirty what? Thirty-two. Uh, Twenty-four now, but we've got about another two dozen on the go. So wow, yeah. wow, amazing. Yeah. Thanks, Come on, mate. Really, Neil, really, really yeah. appreciate it, mate. No worries. Nice one. Cheers, Nick. Cheers, man. That was interesting. Uh, chat with Nick Ballard from Acorn. Could have talked to him for a lot longer and actually did. <laughs> that, that was the edited version. And could have gone in many, many directions, really. And not only does he have a clear idea in his mind what's wrong with the system, but also how you can change that. Lots of people have sharp political analyses in this day and age, but do very little about it. And I think he's clearly a doer to grow the organisation from, you know, one in Bristol five, six years ago to 23 up and down the country is amazing. And I think that that sense of perhaps being sort of slightly disillusioned by party politics himself, very similar to those people that feel left behind. And 
just kind of going well sod it i'm going to take direct action into my own hands set something up and see how we can start to gradually bit by bit change society that what i'll take away from it is is that action centered focus not sitting on your arse moaning about things actually trying to do something and not waiting for people to do that for you Thanks for listening to Bristol Unpacked. I'm Neil Maggs, and a big thanks to Rosa Eaton, our audio producer, Adam Cantwell-Corn, our executive producer, and Blue Dot for our music. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes, and if you want to support what we're doing, join the Bristol Cable, along with 2,000 others, to create a new kind of media for the city.